The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Genesis 39, as we're looking at the life of Joseph, an exemplary life of a godly man, very little negative is really said about Joseph. He was human, of course, but uh, at least in terms of reporting what the Scripture says in 14 chapters covering his life in the later part of Genesis, he's a man who walked in a very positive way before God in difficult circumstances. I'm going to read most of Genesis 39, beginning at verse 1 today. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all he had in house and field. So he left all he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me my master has no concern about anything in his house, And has put everything he has in my charge. He is not greater in the house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me, except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were there, In the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as he saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled from the house, she called to the men of the household and said to them, Look, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried aloud with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until the master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came to me to laugh at me. And as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled from the house. As soon as the master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, 
in this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. This is God's word. Today you might hear a saying that comes out every now and then. If you were thinking about a vacation to Las Vegas, Nevada, there's a saying that goes, what's done in Vegas stays in Vegas. Seems to me to imply that we've declared Las Vegas a free sin zone, and you can go there and do whatever you want, and it doesn't count on your moral record. I think of that as being a very foolish thing to say. It's not the only reason why I probably rate Las Vegas as desirable places to go somewhere on my list right up there with Uzbekistan or somewhere like that. I don't need a place where somebody's going to declare that morally I'm free to do whatever I wish to do and I won't be held accountable. The notion of such a thing makes me know that I couldn't trust myself there, and I don't think you should either. Genesis 39 actually traces almost 13 years in Joseph's life. We don't figure that out yet, but later on you can figure out the math of his age. From age 17 to 30 or so, he was in the circumstances that are described in chapter 39. And once more we find God's sovereign blessing following a man of faith through tragic circumstances. He's already been through bad enough that you would experience in a whole lifetime. His ten brothers uniting to beat him up and sell him for profit and sit down and eat lunch while he was stuck in a hole crying out for their help, and they ignored him. What's worse than that? Well, there's more worse actually to come for Joseph as we follow him here. For this Son of Jacob, Egypt, was the Las Vegas of his life. Genesis 39 shows how the presence of God pursued this young man into a country that was renowned for its materialism, its anti-God spirit, and its sensuality. Centuries before Christ, back in Joseph's time, there were already pyramids and sphinx statues in Egypt. And many of the things that you associate with that land for whatever you might have studied about it in school or maybe you have even traveled there. Here was a country that was advanced in many ways as a civilization. Their knowledge of medicine and science and astronomy and architecture and other important things was well advanced. Their agriculture was superior. The black soil of the Nile Delta and River Valley was able to grow almost anything. And so Egypt, for many centuries, had a strong economy as nearby countries came to buy the food products that they could produce in abundance. But for all the ways in which it was an advanced culture, there were other things about Egypt that were very dark, particularly their understanding of spirituality. The Egyptians were animists. They worshipped things in nature, animals and 
various natural phenomena. They had a whole array of gods. Perhaps chief was Ra, god of the sun, or Osiris, the river god, or Sobek, the great crocodile god of the river. There was no true knowledge of the only god in Egypt. And for all of their science and advanced learning, they really were in darkness that way. And also in areas of sensuality, the image that you have from a Cleopatra in history, who can, I guess this is really carrying me back because I was a child when I saw this, but I I can vividly remember a Life magazine cover from the early 60s, I think it was, when Elizabeth Taylor was playing Cleopatra and the vivid sexuality that she was projecting in that film role was probably true in many ways to what Egypt was about. You think of Joseph as a young man in his 20s growing to maturity in that environment, all by himself. He didn't have real companions, but he had his God. He had the presence of his God, and that meant everything. And yet here he was, and he could have done what many young men would do in such an environment. He could have simply indulged himself and uh, had fun, taken in the pleasures, went in Egypt, do what the Egyptians do. But Joseph did not, and we aim to say why he did not here today. First of all, you need to observe here how the presence of God promoted Joseph's worldly success. He was bought as a slave, so he was now a piece of property, obliged to do whatever Potiphar, this captain of uh, security forces, would tell him to do. And so he did. And he not only did what he was told, he did more than he was told. And quickly we find out that his performance of duties charged in the household of Potiphar, both in the fields and the house, were so superior that Potiphar quickly saw that putting this man in charge of everything was the right thing to do. Isn't it interesting how a slave can actually rise above captivity and slavery by showing excellence in doing the work that he is given to do? He's almost like a a free man, really. There are no chains that have to bind him here. He's bound by his excellence of, of labor and talent. Well, if you don't know it, on the back of your $1 bill, you have uh, something that speaks to this text, and that is a pyramid derived from the great seal of the United States of America. You can look it up online and you'll find confused reports about how this symbol of a pyramid with a great all-seeing eye on top of it with rays coming out was derived. Some say it was a Masonic Symbol. Others say, no, it has an earlier derivation than that. But it was called the Eye of Providence when it was put on our money. An old symbol of the idea, the notion that God is a watchful God and sees all things and observes all things. And it stands for the very thing we're talking about here, the presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord wasn't some mystic thing. I know that you might think of what we read in Exodus when God's presence was witnessed by Israel in their Exodus journey by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. That isn't the case here. It's not as if some kind of sparkly cloud was around Joseph's head or something. 
the presence of God, it seems, was Joseph's solid understanding that God was with him, that God saw him, and was accompanying his every step that he took, and that he was never out from under the gaze of God. Christians have long used a Latin phrase, coram Deo, to signify the idea that we live before God, that our lives are open to him. He sees us. He knows what we are. We're not hidden to him, no matter where we are, no matter how we might think we're trying to keep him from discovering what we're doing. He sees and he knows. And so Joseph knew that his real employer was not Potiphar, but God himself. And if his work was done so as to please the real employer, the Lord God, Potiphar could not help but be pleased. So we read here in verse 5, the blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar, a worldly man, had because of Joseph. And Joseph must have thought to himself, why, you know, everybody here thinks that I'm Potiphar's slave and I'm working to please him, but I'm not. I bring the presence of God into this godless place, and I hope that Egyptians might learn something they've never seen or understood before, that the life of a man in captivity can really belong to the true and universal God. The Apostle Paul commented on this exact principle many years, many centuries later in his epistle to the Colossians chapter 3. Paul wrote there, Obey your earthly masters in everything. Work not only when their eye is on you to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence toward the Lord. And whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as serving the Lord, not men. Wonderful lesson that is timeless. It worked in Joseph's day. It worked in Paul's day. You and I can decide as Christian believers that we will either react to perhaps an an unpleasant or onerous employer who demands unfair things, who gives us difficult commands, who makes employment with him downright unpleasant, that we're working for a slave taskmaster or we're actually working for God. And in working for God, we will show that we are so superior to the commands of a heavy taskmaster that that person will not understand the kind of work that you do. And I guarantee you there will be a similar response as Joseph elicited. You know, we're only a few weeks now from our Labor Day holiday. It occurred to me the other day. We don't make that much out of Labor Day, at least not what it was originally designed to mean. A day, it was back in the days when laboring men, blue-collar people, really didn't get many holidays or vacations, and they were to, to get a day to think about rest from their labor and the whole relationship with employers. Today, it's just a picnic day for us and not something we think that much about. But think about it. Think about those of you that are employed at least, especially you younger folks with your work lives still in front of you, maybe some of you still students, and you don't really know what your work life is going to turn out to be. You know perhaps what your interests are or your college major or your high school interest, and you think, well, I think I'll be an engineer or I'll be a nurse or a surgeon or whatever, but you don't know. 
Who will you be working for? Well, you say, how can I know that, Pastor? I'm only 18. Or I don't have that figured out, who I'll be working for most of my life. But I want you to think about it. Who will you be working for? Is it possible you need to be thinking about working with the Lord, your God, as the one employer you report to at the end of every day and every week? And look at what happened in Joseph's case. There was no slave chain on him. He was really a free man because he worked for the Lord and for the Lord's glory. And you can do that too because our aim is to be at the end of life and to hear our God say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your real employer. The presence of God promoted Joseph's success and the awareness of the presence of God. Well, there's this dominating second issue then for us to note in Genesis 39, and it begins with verse 6, with the seduction staged by a woman. We don't even know what to call her except Mrs. Potiphar. So she's always been Mrs. Potiphar because nobody knows her name. Here was a woman, no doubt, bred of privilege, spoiled, bored, possibly approaching middle age and upset about the fact that her former beauty wasn't what it used to be, didn't have enough to do with herself during the day, got up at 11 o'clock promptly every morning and tried to find something to keep herself busy with. And in this case, what she kept busy with was looking for attractive servants to beguile. Well, we read that she said to Joseph, who was handsome, young, strong, come to bed with me. Well, Joseph refused her, and not once, but multiple times, until her teasing voice took an edge on it and wasn't just an invitation anymore. It was a demand. You are a slave in this house. Do what I say. And Joseph still refused her. You probably know the saying, hell has no fury like a woman scorned. Well, this woman was scorned, and she did not like it. So she was once more persistent in the day when she grabbed a hold of Joseph's clothing, some kind of a cloak or outer garment that he wore, held on, demanded, and he pulled away, and you know how he fled the house. And by the way, I don't know that I ever thought of this before last week, that it was twice that Joseph got in trouble, leaving behind him incriminating evidence in the form of an article of clothing. Both times, it caused trouble. Why did Joseph run from Mrs. Potiphar? The house was empty. Nobody would know. Even if they did, he was a servant against whom people knew that, you know, criticism of him is not going to go far because the Lord and master of the house saw him as the most reputable servant. And couldn't he just reason to himself that what happens in Egypt stays in Egypt? But no, Joseph couldn't do that. He was mindful of the gaze of his God who saw him even behind closed doors or in secluded occasions or when nobody else was around. And look what he said. You need to look what he said and think about what he said in verse 9. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God. 
You see, Joseph didn't think like the Egyptians, or otherwise he would have said, oh, I can certainly do this. I can get away with it. It's just a little thing. She doesn't care. I don't have to care. A little love in the afternoon. Why not? No. How can I do this great wickedness? You say, well, well, isn't that a little bit extreme? No, it's not extreme. It's exactly what the, the situation demanded, that Joseph see that he would commit a violation of the will of God and would, in effect, be slapping the face of his God who looked upon him. This wasn't a matter for ethical debate where he said, let me think about this for a minute. Uh, Mrs. Potiphar, just cool your jets there, and I'm going to go over and think about this, and maybe we can work out something. No, 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 there was no debating this. There was no gray area here. This was black and white. The command of God was one man, one woman in the covenant of marriage for life. Joseph knew that, and therefore he could call it what it was, a great wickedness against God. He could name it for what God named it. And he was a God-possessed young man who had figured this out in advance and didn't need to stop and, and work it out in his mind. He knew to do the one thing that you can do. And by the way, the Bible tells us in other places to do exactly what he did. Flee! Feet don't fail me now. Let me get out of the occasion of this. I'm gone. You know, I became aware as I was working on this message of the time of year. It's... Not long now before another academic year for our students, our college students who go to universities and various places around our land are leaving us already. Some may already be beginning in their fall programs or will be in the next week or so. And I think about students of this congregation who go to the great universities. We are very blessed here, if you don't know it. We have had, over the years, students who've excelled in all kinds of ways. They've, they've won the county science fair. They've won uh, great scholarships to the fine universities of our land, the top-name universities I could reel them off that our students have gone to and have earned honors and graduated with honors degrees and great respect. And yet, I know that even as they go to some of these great universities with names like Yale and Georgetown and Penn and State College, whatever you want to name. In some cases, in many cases, sadly, they might as well be going to what the ancients used to call the flesh pots of Egypt because of the morality that has ceased to exist on so many of our campuses. And probably most of us don't even know the half of it. I pray for students from this church. Our pastors, when we gather every Thursday morning, discuss various things to help each other and share our ministry, but we also try to pray. Sometimes we talk too long and we don't pray enough, but our aim is to pray and go through the directory of the church, praying so that we get through that directory in at least a year, and we we generally do that. We pray for you. We know something about you and your struggles and your family and your your difficulties and your illnesses and all kinds of things, and we pray for you. And I pray for students of this church especially. What tremendous challenges they have, even the best of them with their their great intellectual gifts, some of them in sports or 
uh, very gifted in that area, I pray for them. Because the places where they spend two semesters every year are places of tremendous temptation and very few restraints anymore. And I know what I've seen now in a couple of decades of students from this church, and I commend before God those who have resisted temptation, those who have said, I will not, like Joseph, I will not do as the Egyptians do. But I know also that there have been others who have been pulled astray and have fallen after thinking they would never do that because they didn't have a predetermined fear of the Lord in advance of facing the temptation. You say, fear of the Lord? What, What are you preaching about now? Am I supposed to be afraid of God? I'm not talking about craven terror as if God is going to come and squash you for your bad behavior. That's a pagan notion. I'm talking about respect and reverence for your Creator and Heavenly Father of such a kind that you know that every hour of your life He looks upon it. He watches you. And He wants to bless you and He wants you to to understand His Word and live according to it. And you need to learn to live in a consciousness of His living, breathing presence before the fact of temptation so that your feet will be educated and know how to flee when the moment comes because you've decided to flee in advance. Well, maybe you ask, and I ask it as a third point today, can a Christian really dwell in the presence of God today so as to do what Joseph did? Well, I say the answer is very obvious. Of course it can. In fact, you're asking a very question of what it is to be a Christian. Every Christian knows, having bowed to Jesus Christ and calling him Lord, we have the presence of God in us by the Holy Spirit. We have Christ himself, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what it is to be a Christian. And for you then, Christian believer, 1 Corinthians 10 13 says this, no temptation has come upon you but as such as is common to man. Don't tell me you're being tested or tempted worse than anybody else has ever been. Nonsense. You're being tested and tempted exactly the way every man and woman in history has ever been tempted. But the scripture says there, Paul writes, and God is faithful who will with the temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And one of the ways of escape exists in knowing how to call things what they are. I'm struck by the term in this text, verse 9, a great wickedness. Maybe some of you look at that and say, great wickedness? Are you kidding me? A couple people shacking up? What's the big deal? It's not a great wickedness in the eyes of TV or movies or any media that I look at today. Great wickedness? Yes, great wickedness. For that's what it is to have sexual intimacy outside of marriage. God teaches that in his word. David knew that way back when he was lolling on his rooftop one fine day in Jerusalem. Some people say maybe he should have been out fighting a battle or something instead of lazing around. But there he was casting his eye across Jerusalem and seeing a lady having a bath on the roof of her home. You know the awful story of David and Bathsheba. 
Suddenly, the king of Israel was able to turn sexual temptation into murder, having her husband killed, and going along and thinking everything was fine until a preacher stood up and said, you're the man, David. You've committed a great sin against God. Thankfully, David was the man of God who was well acquainted with the presence of God in his life, and right away it struck him, and he said, Nathan, you're right. It's me and no one else. I have sinned against the Lord and the Lord only. Against you only have I sinned. You repeated it in our prayer of confession today, the 51st Psalm. You say, wait a minute, what is this against you and you only? Didn't he sin against Uriah? Didn't he sin against Bathsheba? Of course he did. But the core of it was what a man of God, aware of the presence of God, did to God. David says, I might as well have slapped God in the face because that's what my sin amounted to. In this 21st century age, we look at this ancient tale of Joseph many centuries before Christ and say, folks, we can and we do as Christians have a strong sense of the presence of the Lord in our lives. It's guaranteed to a Christian. This presence of the Lord thing is a big subject in Scripture from beginning to end. Think about Moses. That's yet to come in Exodus here after Joseph. But Moses was sent on an errand to go and tell Pharaoh to let his people go. And he said, I can't do that. I'm, Lord, you got the wrong man. I'm not a good speaker and all this. Who will go with me? They're going to say, who are you and, and why should we listen to you? And the Lord said, Moses, tell them the I am that I am is the one sending you. The Lord was with him. Jesus was said to be Emmanuel when he came to earth. God, what? With us. Most important preposition you can imagine. God with us. In John 14, Jesus knew he was leaving his disciples through his death on the cross. But he said, don't worry, I will return in the person of another counselor, the Holy Spirit, who will take up residence in you. I'll be with you. He also said in Matthew 28, 20, in the Great Commission, to go into the world, make disciples, I go with you to the end of the age. I'm not asking you to do it alone. I'm going with you. And then if you want to follow that theme, and I'm just dropping a few suggestions on this theme to you, the very end of the Bible, second last chapter, Revelation 21, what is the grand vision of the end of time as all believers are gathered before God? And Revelation 21 tells of the immediacy of God's presence with those who love him and worship him. And its great notion is this, God will be with us and be our God forever. Wow. I mean, beginning to end, that's the Bible's theme. Don't tell me, Christian, I, God's not with me like he was with Joseph. No, sir. If you're a believer in Christ, he is with you. You are his vessel. He lives in you. If you're saying, is God with me, you're asking, am I a Christian? And if you say, yes, I am, then he's with you. He's with you to bless you and bless those around you as you follow him and follow his will and look upon what he calls great wickedness as great wickedness. Like Joseph, how can we forget that we are new creatures in Christ, that we bear his name, 
for honor or dishonor. And, and when we misbehave, it's Christ that people are seeing dragged down in the mud. His sympathetic eye is on us. He dwells in us. He whispers to us, go this way. And I say to you, there's one verse that I'll summarize with that speaks to me on this subject again and again. 1 Corinthians 6.20 You, this is addressed to Christians, you do not belong to yourself. You were bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. Thanks be to God. Father, what a challenge. So easy for us to think that there's a Las Vegas around every corner where we can do what we want and no one will know. You know. You know everything we do. You know everything we think. We confess to you we've been very foolish many times in thinking we're somehow in the closet doing things that won't count on our record. Thank you for being the God who sees and knows all, even though it can be a bit of a terrifying idea. Thank you for being a God who is with us in the spirit of Jesus Christ present in every age to come. Thank you for giving wings to our feet that we might flee from things that would dishonor you. Help us in this, for Jesus' sake. Amen.